Hey, Matthew, thanks for coming on. Hey, Jake, thanks for having me, man. So I came across your work uh, for your book, Practicing Mindfulness, the 75 Essential um, Meditations. What I liked about it was you you did a really good job of taking I, the the essential aspects of mindfulness and I think talking about how they can be applied more broadly because for a, a while, the way that I had kind of thought about meditation being new to it was like you sit down, close your eyes, focus on the breath for a little bit. You just, you hang out and then set the timer. A timer goes off and that's kind of it. But I, I hadn't really noticed much of how, how, how it can run through really anything that you're doing in your life in any domain of life. So I thought that all of those different tools and contexts were, were really interesting. So what, what led you to writing this book? Yeah, thank you. That is what I was going for with the book cool. as well. What led me to, to writing a book that was kind of pragmatic or practical was um, I have spent time in like at meditation retreats or at monasteries where I am sitting like that for extended periods. But the reality is most of us don't spend most of our day days in kind of the monastic life sitting in silence. Um, and it's a wonderful retreat when we can, but that's just not the reality of, of life for many of us. So inspired by some of my teachers and some of the uh, practices that have been offered to me throughout the years of how do we bring mindfulness to everyday life? How do we um, not just like practice, but really cultivate some awareness or some present time awareness, some understanding of what's going on? Because I found for myself that as useful as the sitting meditation is, was, and still is in my life, um, it was rather easy to like get off the cushion and like leave my practice there was what was hap happening for me a little bit. And I work with a lot of students, both we had a meditation center for many years um, and one-on-one -on -one who shared the same thing, that they sit and it's great and they find some reprieve or find some understanding or insight. And then they find themselves like flipping someone off in traffic later that day or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's like a little funny, but it's all too common, right? Like I, yeah. I of course, do it too, where I notice myself. Uh, on autopilot or mindless or falling mm -hmm. into old habits. So how to really investigate how to really like incorporate these practices and cultivating them throughout our days, not just in the sitting periods. So you mentioned in the book being or going to retreats and noticing the difference between how some of those people were compared to just the average person, like it, it just in the way that they are, their, their calmness, like a way of being more peaceful, what, what attracted you to, to those people that, that you were coming across? I will say, I don't know if it says it in the book, but I was first introduced to meditation when I was uh, like a teenager by my mm -hmm. parents and thought it was like, uh, you know, just rebel against whatever my parents want from <laughs> me. So it was like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And I remember going to the meditation centers and thinking people were kind of like aloof or something. And then as I got older and went to retreats or monasteries, um, I don't, I definitely think there was a sense of calmness, but it was, and I didn't have the words for it at the time, mm -hmm. but there was a sense of equanimity, a sense of kind of going with the flow or not being so knocked off balance that these people had, of um, taking things as they came, like 
I remember being at Deer Park Monastery, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery uh, in Southern California, and we were building a garden with the nuns, uh, like redoing their garden. And there was some sort of problem, like a, there was, there ended up being like a water line there and nobody got upset. Nobody like freaked out and we like restarted the project somewhere else. We, it took days. We like refilled it back in and moved the garden. But nobody was frantic. Nobody was upset. Yeah. Nobody blamed. No one looked for anyone to blame. It was kind of just, okay, well, what do we do now? And it was this sense of, yeah, not being knocked off balance by life. Yeah, you mentioned in the book, um, I think you said your dad gave you a meditation book when you were 14. Is that something that they had been big advocates for? Like, has that, has meditation been something that, that you were around much growing up? So when I was little, no, but what happened was my mom got sober in 12 step when I was, uh, she started going 12 step when I was 10, got sober when I was 12. Mm. And I think that kind of, um, introduced both my, my dad went to Al-Anon and they introduced both my parents to different, uh, kind of paths of spirituality. Mm. So from that age of like 10 or 12, they got into meditation, going to a meditation center and found it really, the truth is they found it really beneficial for themselves. And I was struggling at the time. Um, so they offered it to me and I read, it was the miracle of mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. Um, and I read it and I was like, this is wonderful. And then I kind of just left it. It wasn't like, it wasn't something like at that point in my life that I was ready to incorporate, but I did see, I do, do think it like planted the seed. Like my parents brought me to spirit rock. I was not like surrounded by meditation, uh, but it was offered to me or it was made available. Mm. And although I didn't really water that seed at that time, when I was struggling in my own life, it kind of was something easy to come back to because it had been introduced to me. Speaking of Thich Nhat Hanh, who, who have been, and I, I think you mentioned Tara Brock. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but uh, speaking of people like that, who have been some of your bigger influences and in teachers as you've traveled down this path and how have they influenced maybe the way that you wrote the book or the way that, that you think about mindfulness in general? So definitely Thich Nhat Hanh. I think that, uh, he has, he had a way with words and presenting mindfulness, uh, especially listening to him. That was kind of contagious. Like there's a sense of easeful joy and many of his books are really, uh, really centered on bringing mindfulness to everyday life. In what I think is an accessible way. I sat for a long time with Against the Stream and Noah Levine uh, and Vinnie Ferraro and everyone there, which I found very, um, for me at the time, I found very approachable. I was 19 when I got sober. I have tattoos. I wasn't like necessarily the most uh, like clean cut person. Um, I was a white dude with dreadlocks. <laughs> And, uh, and they were like, you know, the punk rock Buddhists and they swore when they, they used cuss words sometimes when they taught. So I really latched onto that a little bit of, um, I think just realizing that to practice and be mindful doesn't mean being this like really kind of stoic or, uh, boring person that I had in my mind. So it was a great yeah. introduction. 
Tara Brock has been uh, a wonderful teacher for me, just as she, um, I believe, I don't know if she has a PsyD or what her degree is, but she's also a psychologist. Hmm. Um, so she brings like a little bit of modern or Western thinking and, and kind of mixes the two that I find very approachable. And then I read a lot of like, uh, like more Buddhist stuff. I read a lot of Ajahn Chah, who's a Thai forest teacher, um, whose big thing is like letting things go or leaving things be, which doesn't resonate with everyone, but it does with right. me. Like so much of my practice is just kind of leaving things be. Yeah. And then, uh, Tom Jeff, I may have talked about him in the book, but he's one of the, he translates a lot of old Buddhist teachings into English. And I've sat with him on retreats and at his monastery. And he's very, I've always liked him because he's very direct and just, uh, he's a teacher who, when I ask him a question, it's not a lack of compassion, but he always tells me, mm. uh, you know, stop doing that <laughs> or something very direct, which I think we need in our practice at times, whether mm. it's from a teacher or a therapist or whoever. Yeah. Do you think that Zen has been one of your primary um, influences or has there been other sects that you've gone to more? So no, I've mostly, I mean, I read a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh, which is rooted in like engaged Zen. Yeah. Um, otherwise my exposure to Zen has been relatively limited. Most of the okay. teachers I've studied with have been in the more Thai forest tradition that, and the insight meditation tradition that was born from that. Okay. So a lot of my actual sitting and training was with, you know, Jack Thornfield, Joseph mm. Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. Nice. Um, and rooted in, in that tradition. So what got you on the, on the transition from going to retreats and practicing and being around these teachers to becoming a teacher yourself? Oh, ego probably. <laughs> um, Explain that. <laughs> but if I'm being, if I'm being completely honest, like I definitely, yeah. um, the first time that there was a facilitator training being offered, I asked my teacher at the time, could I go through the facilitator training to leave groups? And he was like, no, you're not ready for that. And I was so hurt. Um, and I took it personally a little bit, which I, it was personal. I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. um, and then came a teacher training through Spirit Rock that was a little bit more in-depth and serious and um, one of my, my teacher at the time, Kevin Griffin, who writes, uh, he writes a lot of books about like Buddhism and the 12 steps that I found really useful. Mm. Um, he nominated me for the program. And at the time I had been like facilitating a team group at against the stream, which was like very casual. Um, and I really enjoyed it just cause I was like 21 or 22. I mean, I'm older, I was like 23 or 24. Um, and these kids were 16, 17, 18, and they wanted someone young to kind of relate to them. Um, and I went through the teacher training and frankly, I wasn't teaching anything. It was just, uh, going through the training because I was asked to do it. And because my teacher thought, um, I should. And then we started, uh, the meditation center and I started teaching more. And I really did kind of like grow to, uh, appreciate it as a form of my own practice, as a form of working, working with others and benefiting others, but also in, um, it doesn't feel right to teach something 
that I'm absolutely not practicing. It doesn't feel right um, or wholesome to be talking about things um, that I have no experience with. So it really helped me investigate my own practice and my practice in speaking to others and listening to others mm -hmm. and working with others. It was almost like a whole new, uh, like a whole new dynamic and a whole new way to practice that I hadn't investigated. So the the retreat that you mentioned or the center that you mentioned, is that One Mind Dharma? So we, yes, we had the okay. One Mind Dharma Center um, in Northern California, in Sonoma okay. County for four years. And then we left Sonoma County to move out of the country five years ago. And it was really beautiful, the community there were a couple other people in the community that had gone through some sort of facilitator training. One person actually in the Zen tradition um, who had been practicing for like 30 years and the community kind of took it over. And now I think it's called Petaluma Mindfulness Center or Mindfulness Community. And they still meet regularly and, and everything. Um, and I switched my groups to online and working mostly one-on-one -on -one with students. So what all are you doing um, with One Mind Dharma? It, it, <laughs> yeah. it looks like there's kind of a lot going on. Or, <laughs> so or, there's like... too much going on. Okay. <laughs> I've been trying to pick it up for years. Um, <laughs> the, the main thing I'm doing right now is we had online groups for quite some time. A lot of people that I used to sit with there uh, in Sonoma County in Los Angeles where we lived before. And then when my kids were born, uh, we stopped doing the groups and I work mostly one-on-one -on -one with people now. Okay. Uh, we do have some like courses and like free meditation challenges and whatnot. Um, but my, I found that like my, my real passion is working one-on-one -on -one with people. Um, not like I'm not a therapist. I'm not licensed in that regard. Um, but just working with people who want to bring mindful, not just mindfulness, but mindfulness or compassion to uh, their daily life. I get a lot of people that show up with some sort of uh, affliction or suffering in some way, right? Like anyone who is drawn to mindfulness or meditation right. probably is aware of some suffering in their life in some way, um, even if it's just some discontentment. But a lot of people dealing with like relationship issues or uh, not feeling fulfilled with their work or family or just general anxiety or something. Um, and I really love like the dedicated time and space of working one-on-one -on -one with people to find going back to the beginning of the conversation practices, both, uh, I think people need guidance sometimes. I know I do, uh, what should I be doing in meditation? Exactly. Like sometimes mm -hmm. you need a little guidance and then also what can I be, how can I kind of view this, uh, in daily life when it arises and what tools do I have? What internal resources do I already have that I can call upon? So in your teaching, what would you say are the most fundamental building blocks for mindfulness that kind of go throughout all of the practices? Like what are the core pieces that are the most important to have in place? As far as like pragmatically or theoretically? Hmm. Answered your question with the question. Well, that, that's interesting. I didn't know that there was a difference. What, what is the difference? So, well, I mean, like, I think there's a piece of mindfulness that's present time awareness, it's often called. Yeah. But there's also 
the piece of mindfulness. Mindfulness is obviously an English word that comes that was translated from the Buddhist or the Pali word uh, sati. And the word itself actually means like to remember. So I think there's a piece of mindfulness that's remembering. And the example I often use is that it's not mindful to say something harmful to somebody else, but to be present while doing it, right? That's, yes, you're aware that you're doing it, but that's not really mindfulness. Mindfulness is recognizing and remembering that when I do this, it causes harm to the other person and harm to myself because I feel guilty. So mindfulness, as far as like a fundamental piece, isn't just being aware of what's going on. It's also being aware of the cause and effect of Mm. We obviously don't know, like, I don't know if I say something harmful to you, how you're going to respond or what impact it's going to have. But I often can have an idea of if it's going to be harmful or helpful, right? Yeah. I know that there's certain words I can use that are going to be harmful every time nearly. So there's a piece of mindfulness that's recognizing uh, that I think is often lost in kind of Western modern mindfulness practices. That's not just awareness, but recognizing is this causing harm or is this causing less suffering in the person? Um, recognizing the consequences of our actions. What is well, a lot of what you'll hear and you talk about in the book is the importance of focusing on the present and not getting too distracted in the past and the future why is that so important and how can that be balanced with planning things out and having some idea of where you're going? It's a trick of, of, um, practicing in, in the modern world, right? Like talking about the monks. Yeah. I actually think in some regards they have it. Once you adjust, they have it easier. They don't have to plan their meals are, they, uh, not big, but they ask for donations for their meals. You don't really yeah. have to plan a ton. And it is a little bit easier to practice in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and being a lay person like we are and living in the normal world, I do think there's some healthy level of not necessarily falling into rumination, but reflection mm-hmm. um, that we can reflect on. We can reflect mindfully on, oh man, when I said this to this person earlier today, I think that was like harmful or I shouldn't have said that or it came out wrong. And we can reflect mindfully and watch the thought process without beating ourselves up. Or if we Mm -hmm. do start beating ourselves up to notice it, we can reflect on, oh, I didn't get everything done. I wanted to get done today. And then the thought comes up of like, oh, I'm such a procrastinator, which I am. But (laughs) we can watch watch that thought instead of getting carried away by it. And same with the future and with planning. I think that... uh, we can plan, like, for example, I plan my day. I have a calendar, it's a shared calendar with my partner. Um, and we plan out, like, I plan out my meals just because mm. I'll not eat if I don't plan out my meals. <laughs> Me too. Um, so to plan it out in a mindful way that's like self-care and caring for me. And when I do start falling into that anxiety or worry or future tripping or whatever mm. kind of lens we want to view it through, um, a word we want to use to notice that that's happening. Like, oh, I'm getting this, uh, this thoughts pulling me and I've hooked in and it's kind of dragging mm-hmm. me on. So I actually think there's a way to both reflect on the past, plan for the future, um, 
and notice it, even with something like anxiety about the future, to notice this is anxiety. I'm not going to outthink this, but here goes my thoughts. I'm like hooking in. Mm -hmm. It's causing me some suffering. That's mindfulness right there. Mm -hmm. So speaking of unhooking, I think that was, that might've been practice 13. You talk about um, unhooking from your thoughts. How can, I guess, how, how can fact, that I'm fact checking? What? Okay. Is, is that I right? Open, I opened the book to check because you know it better than I did. <laughs> is that right? It is right. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how can we, I, I, I think that's a, a critical part of just not getting wound up and being fragmented in your mind, um, which kind of just leaves you like going nowhere by being spread thin. How, what are some of the best ways to, to effectively do that consistently? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it, it totally a little bit of a tangent, but it reminds That's me fine. of that I went to a meditation at one point, I think it might've been in 12 step. And the person leading said like, close your eyes and clear your mind. I remember thinking, man, if I could clear my mind, I wouldn't need meditation. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that simple. And unhooking, and I say that because unhooking from the thoughts is a similar, like, uh, it's similarly, like, optimistic or idealistic, I think, sometimes. Not that it's not achievable, but, um, you know, we're not able to do it immediately all the time. I think for me and, and what I've noticed in my practice and in working with students, one big thing is um, noticing the kind of patterns or tendencies like i know for myself that i tend to get those kind of poked into my thoughts or get rolling um like for example when i'm frustrated with my children i love them they're toddlers uh and sometimes when i'm like frustrated them need a break i notice like i hook into every thought of like i shouldn't need a break i should be with them i should uh mm. this isn't like what a good parent or whatever just the mind goes and I know that that's a spot just over the years where my mind hooks in really easily and really deep. So just by knowing ourselves and observing it, uh, we can get to know those points where the mind hooks in and kind of show up a little bit more prepared in a sense. So for me, when I, when I notice those thoughts happening um, around like being frustrated with my kids, I kind of know somewhere in me, like, oh, this is a spot where I get hooked in really easily. And it almost gives me a little bit more of that gap to unhook mm -hmm. just by recognizing it. And that comes from just noticing it happening. And that was something that took me so long, uh, like so long, like so many years of practice to really understand that yeah. there's like an aspect. And I know this word sometimes has a different connotations, but there's like an aspect of faith or trust a little bit that I had so many teachers tell me, like, just bring awareness to when the mind's hooking in and see if you can just leave it be and let the thought keep floating. And if you can't yeah. notice that you can't, and it's difficult and just keep doing that. You don't need to push them away. Just if you're hooked in, then you're hooked in. And, and, uh, there are going to be times where we can't unhook, yeah. right? Like severe uh, moments of anxiety or perhaps someone has some trauma, um, regardless of how large or small the trauma seems. And I think that 
just by recognizing that kind of process of hooking in so many times over the years, what happens is we get less reactive towards it. We notice it happening more quickly and we have a little bit more of a say in how we respond to it. At the very least, not feeding it. Yeah. For, for trauma, one of the things I thought was interesting was the where are my feet technique. Is that, I, I hadn't heard of that one before. Is that related to um, unhooking or is that separate? What, why is that specifically helpful for trauma? So when I was going through teacher training, I totally forget who brought that to us. It might have been Tara Bach. It was someone else. Um, probably put their name in the book and I'm forgetting right now. Um, <laughs> but it was a trauma therapist and she was talking, we were in upstate New York at a retreat and she was talking about um, just things she had learned from her work and education as a trauma therapist that perhaps were either rooted in mindfulness or applied to mindfulness. And one of the practices she offered was the feet and her explanation, that practice of where are my feet and the explanation was that when we get uh, activated, triggered, whatever term you want to use, when the nervous system kind of gets going, sometimes um, with reason or without reason, right? Like, especially if there's some sort of trauma, that the nervous system gets activated and it kind of all rushes up into uh, where most people feel anxiety, like right? the chest, mm -hmm. the arms, maybe sometimes people feel an energy. And by bringing attention uh, back down to the feet, it's almost like it recenters the attention on the whole body and we're not just stuck on the chest. And it allows kind of the, um, the body to breathe more naturally. It allows the kind of energy to settle in a sense. And I remember, quite frankly, like her talking about this and being like, this is like some weird far out stuff. And then we did the practice where she actually um, had us like kind of, I think she gave some example of like a difficult situation that wasn't like too traumatic, but just like an uncomfortable situation. We're all sitting there. And then she said, now come into your feet and see what your response is. And for sure it was a little bit of like priming or, or leading in. Um, but I found it to be incredibly useful for myself. And I still use it to this day when I'm activated or upset. Uh, for me, it's not anxiety as much as anger. I come mm. back to my feet. I use it with, I have a four-year-old who is a four-year-old. Yeah. Sometimes I put my hands on his feet. Like when he's laying down, kind of like throwing a tantrum, I put my hand <laughs> on his feet and I'm like, feel this dude, feel. And it, it helps calm him down. Wow. Um, so I, I, to be quite honest, I don't entirely understand why it works as much as I found it works for me. I've had many students have offered that too, and it works for them just as like a, a settling and reconnecting practice. I think it's really just one, probably one way to come back to the body that people find approachable. Because I've had so many students, especially with anxiety, say, I can't come back to the breath when I'm anxious. Mm -hmm. The chest feels tight and the breathing's rapid and I bring my attention to the breath and it like makes it worse. I have a panic attack. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. Of, of course, you're not going to that's going to, that makes sense. So just as an alternative to that. One of my favorite parts and a part that's been very important to me, just carrying uh, these kinds of practices with me uh, 
just throughout my life is uh, calming the body. And I, I feel like that's, it's such a crucial part because I'm somebody that has a, I guess I have a tendency to like physically tense up quite a bit. And it's, it's, it's strange how well it works just to relax physically. And then like, I, I could feel tension kind of relieve in my head and I think better. I speak better. Like I just feel better in general. How, has that been something that you've put a primary focus on in throughout your teachings and throughout your practice? Because it's not something that I figured out until probably a year in. <laughs> Do you tense like your shoulders and yeah, 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 big Me time. Too. Um, yeah, that like sounded kind of judgy as I came out, but not. no, it's a... um, yeah, it is something that. When uh, in the Buddhist, in the the original Buddhist teachings, there's that that scripture or sutta or discourse on establishing mindfulness, the, the four foundations of mindfulness. Hmm. And the first one is mindfulness of the body. That was where the Buddha started. And he said that, that we could fully awaken just by looking at, mindfully at the body. Like it's that, it's that powerful. And it was one of the ways when I got back into meditation, um, it was, there was like a, I was in rehab at the time and a guy came in, uh, Richard Burr, he actually has a new book out too. Um, anyways, plugging everyone else's stuff, but fine. Um, <laughs> but he did like, it was, it was a secular meditation, like non-religious. And he did a lot of like body scans mm. and stuff like that. And I found it personally, I found it like super accessible was part of why it uh, appealed to me. It wasn't even as much of like the benefits that you're talking about, which are real and true. And I found, but at the very beginning, I just found it accessible that uh, focusing on the breath was hard for me or staying with it, but doing like the body scans of moving through the body. Um, and there were like different forms of it, of just noticing or perhaps relaxing and calming the body and actually putting some energy forth with that. I just found it something that like, I can feel my body. Like as I'm sitting here right now, I can feel the shirt uh, on my body. I can feel the posture of my body. I can, like it's just super accessible. And still when I practice today, the first thing I do pretty much every sit is get a sense of where my body's at. Of course, like try to keep my shoulders from doing this, which they yeah. naturally do during meditation, yeah. start getting tenser. But like, I always start with my body because I think that you always hear that, like the mind body connection mm. and it's kind of become like a platitude in a sense. Like people just say it without, uh, I definitely say it without like really reflecting on it sometimes. Um, but the truth is I found what you have said that quite often. And again, for me, like it's, it's largely, I notice it like anger coming up, um, or frustration. Like I noticed that like kind of tenseness in my shoulders, the energy, like in my arms. Um, and we were, and I also think there's mindful ways we were talking before you clicked record uh, about running mm -hmm. that like sometimes when I'm feeling kind of frustrated with things. I go for a run to like let the energy out. Sometimes I listen to music. Sometimes I do a mindful run and don't have headphones in and just kind of pay attention. And I find that really calms the body. So I think that the body is something both that can serve as a barometer of, of how we're doing, where we can feel uh, the emotions in the body 
and the other way around. As we calm the body, it often uh, and calm the nervous system and kind of like lower the blood pressure. It also can calm or give space in our mind or emotional experience. I think there's quite a bit of body scan practices in the book, um, which made me curious. Do you um, do you try yoga nidra much? That's something I just became aware of recently. Is that something that you've done? No, I I've never. We do yoga at night, like very cheesy yoga uh, yoga with Adrian at night just to stretch yeah. after like working out yeah. or after uh after running and stuff my wife and i but i haven't i know i have not got into yoga nidra or like a serious yoga practice although i do think any movement practice i don't want to say is crucial but is incredibly beneficial hmm. yoga nidra um which i i'm i'm a big fan of yoga just for like strength and flexibility it's it, it in a weird way it's like it balances out things and like calls out muscles i feel like that you don't get when you're lifting in the weight room it like 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 you might think that you're getting strong and stuff and then you go and try a yoga practice and you're falling apart so I, i've always found it pretty interesting for stability yoga nidra is um it's more of a body scan practice i think it might translate to yoga sleep so it's 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 like um it's like a scripted practice where you you lay down and you like listen to somebody do a body scan. It might honestly not be any different than some of the stuff that you cover in the book. I, I was just wondering if that's something that you had um you had played around with much because I I just recently learned about it. Um, it's lovely though and speaks to the I mean, if it is the same and perhaps it's not, but like. The intersection of these different kind of mm -hmm. uh, modalities or lenses with which people kind of practice similar things in a sense. Yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah, it, it's I've I found it's pretty helpful. Um, it's it's similar to a nap. It's supposed to be like restorative for sleep in that kind I'm of a way. Nap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the the practice that you said that you do every day was breathing and noting is that is that still true yeah i was just wondering how long ago did i write this book uh 2018 was when it came out okay yeah that's still true <laughs> uh could, could you explain that one and just kind of go through the steps because i think there's several pieces so i, I don't know quickly. what i was doing when i wrote this book but i can tell you what what i do now okay if that's all right yeah um, i got introduced to this practice it's in this bookshelf or in this cabinet back here by uh, Mahasi Sayadaw. And I found it very approachable again, because it was kind of like simple, it was structured. And I find that mm -hmm. sometimes I need structure in meditation practice. Um, and sometimes I don't, but often I do. And what I do is I start with, uh, I often start my meditation periods with just noticing where the body's at, seeing if I can get a sense of the posture and outline of my body. And then I move into breathing. Um, and I just personally use like an in out noted. Um, obviously in is the inhale and out the exhale. Some people use inhale, exhale. I think I probably offered counting exercises for the book yeah. in the book as well. Mm -hmm. I personally often use in out. Um, 
And then instead of just moving to like an open awareness, which is kind of traditional in this insight meditation tradition, yeah, just uh, a kind of resting in openness. I have found, I guess, over the last five years or so, um, that often when I do that, it, it uh, as beneficial as it is to watch where my mind goes, I need some sort of like anchor to come back to. So mm. what I do is I do in, out, and then I note something, whatever grabs my attention. So I know in, out, I'm sitting, or in, out, hearing, because there's a car going about. Do you do counting for the ins and outs? I don't, but it's funny. I just released a podcast episode last week where I was talking about, um, I was meditating in Mexico. I was in Mexico City, and it's a little louder than where I live, like just, you know, big city. Yeah. I was trying to do a concentration practice, and the mind just would not settle for days. Um, and I returned to the county because I found it, like, uh, again, like a little bit more structured for me or a little bit more prescriptive of like, okay, I'm counting mm -hmm. to this number and then back down or whatever. So it's not something I shy away from as much as um, I think it's a tool I use when the mind's not settling. Do you typically do um, a longer exhale uh, and a faster inhale? Yeah, I don't try yeah. to make my inhale faster. It was actually my wife who brought, we used to teach a meditation center, uh, meditation group at a treatment center, a rehab. She had a practice where the exhale was longer than the inhale because it engages, I'm going to butcher it, it engages the parasympathetic nervous yeah. system. You yep. probably know better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> Ever since then, I've, I've incorporated that. Um, and I incorporate talk about mindfulness and daily life, I incorporate that outside of meditation practice too, when I'm worked up or whatever it is, just to really kind of um, lengthen that exhale and not trick my body, but to remind my body that I'm safe in this moment, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it does work. Like yeah. it, it, it really does um, seem to be helpful. I, I didn't know about that until probably within the last year about the parasympathetic nervous system. So I, I found that really interesting. And I'm like, oh, like this works almost immediately. So it's yeah. awesome though to see this this kind of blossoming of our understanding. Because right, we're still in the yeah. infancy of psychology and neuroscience. Yeah. Like we didn't have phrenology that long ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like so to see this blossoming of psychology and neuroscience and how it relates like to these old and eastern traditions. Um, and what we can take from it for me is like, you have to be adaptable a little bit in your practice. Mm. So I definitely have incorporated that ever since I heard that, um, I think I probably looked it up to make sure it was true and then I incorporated <laughs> it. Fair enough. After. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think 47 was mindful media. Um, that is obviously a big one with i mean just how much media we're consuming today and one that um to me it, it could pretty quickly become like a time sink of just kind of going numb and mindlessly consuming is is that one that that you put much of an emphasis on given all the the media and the screens and everything that we're on all the time yeah and i i mean that one comes directly from a, from a Thich Nhat Hanh 
book or teaching where he talks about just being mindful. I think it was actually in like a mindful eating section where it was like, mm, don't be sense. mindful of what you just eat with your mouth. Be mindful of what you eat with your eyes and ears. Yeah. He phrased it way better than that because he's quite more eloquent than I am. But, um, and I remember reading that and thinking like, yeah, of course, like that makes sense. And I know there's arguments about like, uh, there's, there's a lot of arguments about things like, you know, do violent video games cause or not cause mm. violence or, yeah. or whatever it may be. And I know there's a lot of research for myself. Um, it's funny you ask that in, in January, I listened to a lot of like punk music mm -hmm. always have since I was a kid, um, still do, but it's like all I listen to. And a lot of it's like rather angry and angry about things that frankly, I don't say they should be angry about, but are upsetting, perhaps. Uh, a lot of like political punk and whatnot. And uh, in like January, I was like, I think I'm gonna give punk a like a one month break, just like no punk music. I'm gonna listen to like some positive music and uh, even like just some different music. And that was January this year. Spent nine months, and I I definitely still listen to punk from like when I go skating, I listen to it, but. Uh, I've actually found myself like much more content not listening to it, um, listening to music that's a little bit more like upbeat or whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah, as it relates to like that directly of like, what are we consuming? Is it something kind of violent or angry mm -hmm. or something that produces anxiety? Like I stopped, um, I think I'm probably a little bit older than you, but I stopped using like Facebook and Instagram a few years yeah. ago because I noticed like, it doesn't feel good. Right. Um, I thought it it felt good, but it's it's cultivating this anxiety. Yeah. Um, and I know we can't just was it like the ostrich bury your head in the sand? Like I don't think that's necessarily yeah. healthy. Of you know, pretend that nothing's happening out there, or put our right. blinders on. Um, I think sometimes we may need to out of self care. But a good another good example is I listened. I don't live, I haven't lived in the US in five years. And I was listening to multiple politics podcasts, reading, doom scrolling my Twitter timeline. They'll probably um, make you think that we're on fire. Yeah. And it was just, <laughs> and not to say like, I don't care because I don't live there anymore. Like, no, I'm right. still a citizen. My family lives there. Like, it's, um, but I, but I really toned it down. Yeah. I still follow the news as much as I need to, but not like obsessively like I was. Um, because it was just bringing me, it wasn't bringing me anything. Uh, it wasn't moving me farther from suffering or more towards like liberation or like, was yeah. really dra I was dragging myself into suffering. So I think there's a, there's a balancing act there of not burying our head in the sand, but also not hooking in, not being hooked in by the suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Politics is a, is a weird one because it's like, if, if there's if there's any one thing that I could do to like be less peaceful, it would be just get wrapped up in politics all the time. But it's weird because I, now I can vote. So it's like, there's, it's a weird balance of like, do I just kind of avoid it entirely? But then like, what about voting? Like how much time to put into thinking about that stuff for the most part, as far as, a, as far as politics go, I've kind of become an ostrich. I'm, I, I'll see if I can figure out a better way to handle that. But uh, <laughs> po politics is one I've kind of 
avoided. I, I I thought the music point was interesting too because I I haven't found anything that can change my emotions as quickly as music. Like I, I definitely do notice um, like w- whatever kind of music I'm listening to very much will influence the way that I feel like pretty quickly. Um, so like like you mentioned with punk, I I found like quite a bit I haven't been listening to the same kind of stuff that I, that I used to, because I'll finish listening. And I'm like, uh, I'm not sure about that, that stuff anymore. So like that, it is kind of a weird, a weird transition. Um, for as far as journaling goes, I, I, I thought that was, um, an, an interesting tool that I've, I've used quite a bit. Um, do you find that uh, I think one of the parts was about picking, like clarifying emotions more. It might've been called, what is this emotion? And in journaling, um, is that, is that right? I, I believe you at this point. I, <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I have it written down written yourself. Okay, I, I have it written down. So like, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, I, found I, it. I hope I, I hope I wrote it right. Um, is that, do you like if, if you have an emotion that that you're dealing with w- would you go more towards trying to pinpoint it with a more of an active form of meditation like journaling or would you go towards something like like a seated meditation or a body scan or something like that like if if you're if you're feeling uncomfortable what is kind of the first way that you would go about addressing that yeah so I'll be honest, it's not this practice. I wouldn't do that. That was something I think I offered for more for people like new to practice uh, of really identifying the emotion. For me, what I do is uh, uh, when I have, when I'm having like a strong emotional experience, like unidentified emotion thus far, right? Uh, But I'm having like that that discomfort or dis-ease. I will often either say out loud to like my wife or someone or just in my head, like, oh, this sucks. Not the most like spiritual or enlightened mantra in the world. This sucks. Um, (laughs) It's like the most crude way to put it. But I think a real act of like mindfulness and compassion, right? Of like, not like, oh, I don't want to feel like this, but just noticing, oh, like this sucks. I don't like this. Um, And I think just by doing that, we're noticing, I'm noticing it's unpleasant there's an experience happening it's unpleasant and i have some like aversion to it right yeah pushing it away a little bit and then often what i do um before i really depending on if it's a strong emotional experience what i often do is put some space there first um so for me what that looks like is moving my body i used to think that like uh just going straight to sitting and really just investigating it, even if I was standing or on a bus or whatever, um, or even like I was the person who often like hides from things. Like I would go lay down, like pull the covers over my head, literally or figuratively. Um, and I've actually found in the last however many years of practice that often the way I can kind of process is by moving, is by moving like the energy or nervous system or something. So that's interesting. What, what I'll do is go for a little walk 
you know, sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, and just notice how I feel in the body. And then when I come back uh, to my home or wherever I am, then I'll begin to kind of investigate it. If it, that's, okay. it's a strong emotion, just because yeah. I found for myself that sometimes when I jump right into looking at the experience, um, I get hooked in. I get, okay. it just drags me right off. Um, Cause there's a limit, right? Like there's definitely a time that it's called for to be present as present as possible and compassionate with it. But there are also times where I need to know in myself that my practice in this moment isn't strong enough, not to beat myself up, but isn't strong enough to face this with true mindfulness. I need to like chill for a moment. Then I can bring some awareness to it um, because it's not going to be useful. My wife and I have it with, with uh, like relationship dynamics when we're both, we don't fight so much anymore. Um, but especially earlier in our relationship, when we kind of both get worked up, nothing gets solved in that moment. You need like a little break and then you come back and suddenly it's much more approachable and solve, well, solvable is the word, but much more approachable. And it's the same with, with ourselves. I think. Do you find that by just kind of giving it some room and giving, I guess, the, those feelings some space, do you find that sometimes you're able to just recognize that something's not even really like worth addressing and you can kind of just drop it before going into more of an active problem solving mode. Because I, I find that sometimes where it's like, I, I, I can journal about something and try to work through it. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, wait, this isn't even like, I, I could have just dropped this 15 minutes ago. Like this isn't even worth like <laughs> All paying time. so much attention to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, I have that mind that goes to, if I leave it unchecked, it goes, it's like, my wife calls me dramatic. I'll put it that way. And it's not, and I'm not arguing. Um, that like something will, we just had, uh, we got hit with, my wife had cancer and a surgery and radiation. And we had like paid everything. And then we got hit with another, like not even a big bill, another like $1,000. Um, so like could have been much worse. Mm. And I found my mind going to like, oh no, like, just so many things and like we need to take more money out of savings and blah, blah, blah. And I was like all worked up. And then, uh, I just went to sleep uh, was the honest truth. Thinking about like phrase sleep on it. And I woke up yeah. in the morning and I was like, oh, that's what our savings are for. Right? Like there's, there's nothing to freak out about. Like we're, yeah. we're in a very privileged position where we're financially stable about like, but my mind went to like, just these kind of, oh, do I need to like find more work or like what? Do we need to save more? It's like, we're fine. Just yeah. by sleeping on it and giving it space. Um, because I think that my experience is what happens is in my body and mind, as I have the thought, it kind of like triggers the body, right? Like the the breath definitely my out breath is not longer than my in breath. Um, I begin kind of like not hyperventilating, but you know, breathing a little more quickly. The heart races a little more quickly. The nervous system gets activated. It makes the thoughts go faster. The thoughts going faster make the body go harder and it kind of snowballs. Yeah. And as unpleasant and um, as unpleasant as that is, and as much suffering as that leads to, I think it's also like the other side of the coin is we can do the exact opposite that by uh, lengthening the breath, 
by relaxing the body, by not necessarily engaging with the thoughts which are feeding the body, we can kind of snowball it back in the other direction and give it that space of like, because then when we calm, yeah. calm down, um, we see a little more clearly. Yeah. It, so the, the last practice is letting go of fixing, um, is, is, is what, is what you just mentioned, is, is that a, a attached to that, that idea and the way that you go about problem solving from a more mindful perspective, instead of like letting all of the chatter just kind of start to interfere and then your mind just gets cluttered and you don't really like, you're just overwhelmed with thoughts is it is letting go of, um, of fixing, like, is, is that a way that, that you're able to, I guess, simplify to like a more clear and basic solution and keep out the chatter that doesn't seem to be as helpful? Yeah, I think it goes just, it goes a little bit back to the, the being a lay person things like there are things we are going to need to fix or address right like personally whatever it is like the car breaks down we need to fix it we can't just yeah. like meditate on it and the car is fixed yeah. um so i think it it offers a little bit of trick trickiness there um for me what i found is kind of two things to answer your question one is yes absolutely like to how do we, the question for me in my practice has been, how do I address this in a way that is mindful, compassionate, um, and productive? Because so often of the times when we're, when I'm experiencing some level of anxiety or that rumination, maybe it's the past where it's like, we can't fix it. It already happened. Um, or we can't change what had happened. Um, that it's just completely, it can be completely useless at times, right? Like I'm not yeah. going to worry myself out of this problem or I'm not going to worry myself into a different past that didn't happen. Yeah. So I definitely think by like, almost like trimming the fat in a sense, right? Uh, yeah. we can kind of like trim out the stuff we don't need. I yeah. also think the other piece of it is that for myself, and I notice it with a lot of my students, um, the whoops, sorry. The okay. fixing mind is almost like a, the opposite of compassion in a sense. Yeah. That there's this aspect of compassion that's being with the suffering or discomfort without aversion or or pushing it away too hard. Um, or pushing it away really. And often when I notice this fixing mind that we're talking about coming up, that's often like a little frantic at times. Um, it's just a way to not be with the discomfort that I'm experiencing. Uh, I just mentioning my wife having, she had like a, she had a 28 centimeter tumor, like a 12 inch tumor removed from her and radiation. And she's fine now. Um, they got it all and everything. But it was like this such a good example of like there's nothing I can do. I can yeah. stand and found the best doctor possible and planned everything so the whole family was together and did the best we could. But when she was sitting there in surgery and it was like a four hour surgery, I was sitting in a hospital room 
there's nothing I can, there's nothing I can do. I'm not going to worry yeah. myself into her surgery going well, right? right? Like it's completely useless. Um, and useless in the sense of like not productive, uh, yeah. not useless in the sense of just like, it's kind of a harsh word. And at the same time, this, this, in that case, the desire to fix it was really more born out of, um, a desire to not be with how I felt, which was scared. Mm. Right. It's just, it was a, the tumor in her leg. It wasn't like inner internal, everything went fine, but it's still scary. Um, and I think that that need to fix it or solve it or figure it out, uh, is, was completely born out of an unwillingness or inability in that moment to, to be with the actual suffering of fear I was experiencing and, and lack of control. So I think that the two pieces are both trimming the fat when we can do something and also recognizing that the compassionate response when we are experiencing some discomfort is yeah. to some degree being with it, being present mm -hmm. for it and not letting that fix it mind or problem solving get in the way of actually being with the experience we're having. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that that, that worked out and, um, and everything's that everything's okay now uh well listen man thanks a lot for um for coming on I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you about this and and exploring these ideas and um learning more about your your work and you know thanks a lot for writing that book like i said in the email it's been a it's been a helpful tool for having um i, I guess a little bit more clarity and guidelines as to ways that i can kind of apply these ideas in in different things that i'm doing so thanks man i i i um I really appreciate it. So yeah, I appreciate thanks. that because you write a book and you forget that you know it's five years ago. You forget that people are out there reading it and perhaps benefiting from it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, bro. Yeah, well, thank you.